Do you all love me? That didn't sound very confident. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I love you too, but you may not love my message. We do not have to agree about what I'm going to talk about. But what I'm going to talk about often makes the whole world of believers upset. The title of this morning's message is Rethinking the End Times. <laughs> This morning, I want to talk to you about the so-called end of the world. <laughs> is it really what we think it is? Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> this morning, I will present to you an alternative way of thinking about the end of the world. Like I said before, you are not required to agree with me. So there's no need to go running off to another church just because we have different <laughs> views <laughs> on the end of the world. <laughs> now, some of you are probably already beginning to become uncomfortable because you don't want anyone messing with your current beliefs about the end times. If you're like me, you've spent a lot of time learning and investigating whether or not the rapture will be pre-trib or mid-trib or post-trib. When is this thing happening? So most of us have already accepted a particular understanding of the end times. And it came either from our teachings at church or from watching certain programs on TV or from popular books. In the past, Mark and I even went to conferences about the end times given by a very famous end time minister. And at the end of that conference, I wanted to kick him in the shins. <laughs> because all he had to say after three days was, nobody knows the time and nobody knows the hour. And I thought, you are no help, mister. <laughs> I came all this way and this is what you have for me? <laughs> so my understanding of end times has evolved over the years with the accumulation of more and more information and a better understanding of how to interpret scripture. Even Andrew Womack, even his understanding of the end times has evolved. Last year, Andrew Womack put out a very brief Facebook post, and I don't know if he ever went and got put on his page, but this is what it said. He was at his desk, and somebody was filming him, and he turns to the camera and says, after much study, I've come to the conclusion that the rapture is not what I thought it was. But this conclusion came only after much study. And in order for us to have a change of mind regarding end times, I believe it takes much study. <laughs> I believe much study is the right answer. As for myself, over the years, I've continued to look for more and more answers regarding my end of the world questions. And as I received more and more of the truth, my mind changed several different times. When I first came into the saving knowledge of Christ as a young mother, God put me in my little holiness church, and he knew what he was doing. <laughs> he knew I would learn a lot of things there. <laughs> and my little holiness church taught me that if anyone should ever try to talk me out of a pre-trib rapture, I should run away as fast as possible, screaming, heretic, heretic. So I just accepted what my church taught me, at least for a while. 
And then I began to understand that not everything my church taught me (laughs) was in agreement with what the Holy Spirit was teaching me. For instance, my church taught me that godly ladies should never wear slacks, which I accepted for a while. (laughs) But then I went to the Lord and asked him to show me in the word if those beliefs were actually true according to the scriptures. Now my church used Deuteronomy 22.5 as their foundation for ladies not wearing slacks, which says this, The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all that do so are an abomination unto the Lord thy God. Now, my little church, (laughs) where God put me, didn't separate the Old Covenant from the New. (laughs) So they believed that what was ever applicable in the Old Testament was applicable in the New, and therefore ladies should not wear slacks or pants, because that was men's clothing. As I began to meditate on this scripture, the Lord asked me a question. He'll do that, you know. Because he wants you to think differently. So he asks you the questions. (laughs) He said, what is the difference between what a woman wore and what a man wore at that time in history? I thought, hmm, I don't think I know the answer to that question. So I had to do some homework. And what I found out put this scripture in a whole new light for me. (laughs) First of all, I found out that everybody wore dresses. (laughs) the men and the women were wearing dresses. There was no such thing as pants or slacks. Not for men and not for women. Now, of course, they didn't call what they wore dresses, but everyone wore exactly the same clothing, tunics and robes. And women, they got something extra. They got a work apron. (laughs) Woohoo! (laughs) But the only difference between a man's outfit and a woman's outfit was the undergarments. Let that sink in a little bit. (laughs) Now, doesn't that put a whole new light, a whole new spin on this verse? Ladies, do not wear men's undergarments. Gentlemen, do not wear ladies' undergarments. With this understanding, I can wholeheartedly agree with this scripture. We should all only wear undergarments made for our gender. Yes and amen. (laughs) So this scripture has absolutely nothing to do with slacks or pants and everything to do with undergarments. (laughs) So how did my church get so off base on this scripture? They did it by breaking one of the foundational rules of hermeneutics. Hermeneutics are the rules used by theologians to help them interpret scripture properly. And the rule my church broke is not keeping the scripture in its historical context. My church took a scripture out of its historical context, tried to shove it into the contemporary time period, completely misunderstanding what it was talking about, and then they tried to enforce it with their own understanding of dresses and slacks as a means of trying to get people to be more holy, although the ladies anyway. (laughs) They didn't even have the right covenant. (laughs) When they lifted this verse out of its historical context, they didn't even correctly understand the subject matter. And that's because they didn't understand how it pertained to those for whom it was written. 
Let me say that again. (laughs) They did not understand how it pertained to those for whom it was written. How much of our Bible was written to us? Let me help you. None of it. None of it was written with us in mind. None of it was written to us directly. It was written for us. But it was never written to us. Corinthians was written to a church in Corinth. Romans was a letter sent to the church in Rome. None of it was written with us in mind. (laughs) We learn from it, and it speaks to us by the Holy Spirit. But none of it was written to us. So when we take scriptures out of their historical context and try to make them fit into our contemporary time period, we can come up with all kinds of misinformation, just like my little holiness church and their view on slacks for women. So first and foremost, when trying to understand or interpret scripture, we must first understand what it meant to those to whom it was written. Let me give you a New Testament example. 1 Corinthians 11.10 For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Got any clue about that one? (laughs) Now this is one of the scriptures that most commentators just guess at. (laughs) Because in general, there's nothing in our contemporary understanding that supplies us with the understanding needed to interpret this scripture correctly. This scripture is in the middle of a passage on hair coverings for women, again, with the dressing for women, (laughs) which the Apostle Paul was in favor of. But in the end of that passage, he basically tells believers to choose for themselves according to their cultural understanding of head coverings. (laughs) That's why we don't have to wear scarves. Our cultural understanding says it is okay to not wear a scarf. So what's with the angel remark? How do angels and head coverings have anything to do with each other? (laughs) Well, if we don't understand how the Apostle Paul understood this, then we can't understand the scripture correctly, and we'll just guess. (laughs) But according to Dr. Michael S. Heiser, who has a master's degree in ancient history and a master's and PhD in the Hebrew Bible and the Semitic languages, says this has everything to do with the Jewish understanding of Genesis 6, where the sons of God came unto the daughters of men and procreated with them and brought forth what was known as Nephilim, the mighty men or giants that gave Israel a hard time. So the Apostle Paul's understanding of this would have been that the sons of God in that scripture were angels gone rogue. (laughs) Angels not submitted to the Lord our God. Angels doing their own thing. Now to keep the angels from being tempted again by the women, a woman should cover her hair because in their understanding, medically speaking, they believed that their hair was a sexual organ and they could unwittingly tempt angels into going rogue again. Did you have any idea about that? (laughs) You see, there's no way for us to know. That's why we guess at so much. Long hair for a woman in that period meant she was fertile But long hair for a man meant he was less fertile. They believed long hair on men zapped their virility. So men didn't want long hair because they wanted to be fruitful and multiply. It was very important to be fruitful and multiply. (laughs) And this perspective was the latest and greatest medical knowledge of that time. 
And the very learned, like the Apostle Paul, believed that their hair was an extension of their sexuality for both men and women. Now, think about how the church has tried to force short haircuts on men in contemporary times. You must be fruitful and multiply. Cut your hair. That's dumb. <laughs> That's just dumb. <laughs> and so they did this without understanding the original audience and how they understood what was written. So apart from the historical context of this scripture, there is no way for us to understand what this scripture is actually referring to. We have to understand how the Apostle Paul understood the scriptures in, in Genesis 6, and then we have to understand how the Jewish culture understood head coverings, and even how the Apostle Paul and his audience both understood the medical knowledge of that day. That's a lot of stuff <laughs> that we didn't know. <laughs> now, I said all of that to hopefully convince you that we need to understand what the scriptures meant to those for whom they were originally written in order to correctly understand them today. If the church around the world can misinterpret relatively insignificant scriptures like the ones we've looked at today, then is it possible that the church around the world can also misinterpret some of the end of the world scriptures? I suggest to you that that is exactly what has happened. Probably the most popular theory regarding the end of the world is what I call the left behind theory. It has become widely accepted due to the popular novels written by the author Tim LaHaye. The book of Revelation and Jesus' prophecies of Matthew 24, they're all pushed into the future to take place at some unknown time at the end of the world. <laughs> this current end time theory was originally introduced by an Irish theologian who became an Anglican priest, Mr. John Darby, in the 1800s. The idea of a secret rapture had never been taught in the church, ever, until the 1917 edition of the Schofield Bible had been printed. This was the first study Bible made widely available to the public at a reasonable price. How many of you have a study Bible? Anybody? I have like 12 of them. <laughs> I want to see this perspective, and I want to see that perspective, and I want to see how do you do it. When I study for a message, I consult probably 20 different translations. I like them all. Some of them have neat adjustments. <laughs> but I have to understand what they thought way back then in order to determine if what I'm seeing and believing now is actually true. You see, for years, when I first came to the Lord, people would ask me, do you have a Schofield Bible? And I would say, uh, no. <laughs> well, then you don't have a real Bible. Around the world, the Schofield Study Bible was the number one Bible in print for most of the early 1900s. I got saved when I was 10, but I came to the knowledge that I was saved when I was a young mother. <laughs> I didn't know anything. I wasn't raised in church. And I'm like, isn't the Bible a Bible? Aren't they all the same? No, not according to the Schofield Bible, people. No, that's the only true Bible, and you can't even read any other translation. Because if you do, God's going to be mad. Wow, your God is mean. <laughs> so what happened was, because this was the first study Bible available at a reasonable cost, every minister in America bought one. 
There's a problem with this, though. <laughs> it not only included commentary and cross-referencing, which first Bibles didn't have that. It also had Mr. Darby's brand new understanding of the secret rapture and Mr. Darby's own interpretation of what is called dispensationalism. Dispensationalism is a big word that simply describes how Mr. Darby separated the different time periods according to how God dealt with mankind in each period. Dispensationalism is a type of lens. Just like John Calvin interpreted all of Scripture through the lens of his idea of sovereign grace, so John Darby interpreted all the Scripture through a lens of his own understanding of the different time periods in which God dealt with specific humans in a specific way. Generally speaking, though, <laughs> scholars usually only reckon three dispensations. The patriarchal, in other words, Abraham's time, the Mosaic or Jewish period, Old Covenant, and the Christian period. Mr. Darby, though, had added four more dispensations to his interpretation lens, which included the secret rapture. My point is that none of the early church believed in a secret rapture or a literal end of the world. Now, this contemporary belief was completely absent from the church for the first 1900 years after the resurrection of Jesus. That alone should give us pause. Did all of the early church, including Jesus, get it wrong? Or have we? C.S. Lewis is a world-famous author. He died in the 1960s, but he wrote a, a slew of books. And there are some groups of people who only read what C.S. Lewis wrote. This is what he had to say about Matthew 24. I have it in quotes for you. Of course, this is taken out of a larger piece of work. But there is worse to come. Say what you like, we shall be told. The apocalyptic, the end-time beliefs of the first century Christians have been proven to be false. It is clear from the New Testament that they all expected the second coming in their own lifetime. And worse still, they had a reason, and one which you will find very embarrassing. Their master, the Lord Jesus, had told them so. He shared and indeed created their delusion. He said in so many words, this generation shall not pass till all these things are done. And he was wrong. Clearly, he, speaking of Jesus, knew no more about the end of the world than anybody else. <laughs> That's quite a statement, isn't it? Mr. Lewis had embraced Mr. Darby's end of the world scenarios and interpretations, and instead of admitting that he himself might be wrong in his own interpretation, preferred to call his Lord and Savior embarrassingly ignorant. What? <laughs> Either Jesus was a true prophet and it happened the way he said, or we're misunderstanding something. When God first started leading me into a better biblical understanding of Matthew 24, I was very much like Mr. Lewis. <laughs> I was very attached to my own understanding of what my church taught me and my own understanding of the popular Christian books, what they taught me, and the, own, the popular understanding of the popular TV ministers, what they taught me. I was very attached to all of it. <laughs> Unfortunately, I didn't know this, but they were all based on Mr. Darby's interpretive lens instead of a Jewish worldview within a historically accurate period of time. 
if you take something out of its historical period and try to shove it into today, you're going to get something false. The slacks is a perfect representation. You can't do it because that's not honest. It's not integral. When God was talking to me about questioning my own end-time interpretive lens, I struggled. Could it be that what I believed for all of these years was wrong or at least misinterpreted? <laughs> I wasn't sure I could swallow that. And at the same time, God used something that happened with me and Mark to talk to me about how I was feeling about the possibility of having been wrong about the end times. You heard the story before, most of you, but one day Mark was being silly. I know you can't even imagine that, right? <laughs> and he was impersonating one of the characters from The Wizard of Oz. He was dancing around the house. We represent the lollipop kids, the lollipop kids, the lollipop kids. I interrupted him and said, you know that's not what he said, right? <laughs> and of course, he argued with me. He told me, I've seen that movie probably 30 times. I know what they say. So I told him to Google it. <laughs> I knew that what he said wasn't what was actually said in the movie. It was actually the Lollipop Guild, not the Lollipop Kids. So Mark Googled it and found out that what he had believed his whole life wasn't actually true. <laughs> he had simply misunderstood what the character said. About a day later, <laughs> Mark told me that it really bothered him to find out that what he had believed for his whole life wasn't actually true. And he said to me, I don't want that to be the truth. <laughs> I wanted to be lollipop kids. <laughs> Mark didn't know it, but it was at that time I was feeling the exact same way about my end of the world view. Was it possible that my interpretation and all these other people's interpretations were wrong? I didn't want it to be different from what I had already believed. <laughs> but I also knew that it was possible that I might have been given misinformation or misinterpretation. So I began my search for understanding the end times yet once again. It's been almost 10 years since then, and I still don't have all the answers, <laughs> but I believe I have a much better understanding of end times. My current understanding is more logical, more straightforward, more biblically accurate, and based on historical context. Again, you do not have to agree with me. I only ask that you consider the possibility that the contemporary understanding of an end time might not be as accurate as you have been led to believe. This morning, I plan for us to take a little peek into Matthew 24. And as we do, we need to understand some of the rules of proper hermeneutics. Those rules that keep us on the straight and narrow. Hermeneutics are the rules that theologians use to correctly interpret scripture. They're very strict. Unfortunately, what Christians usually do is they open their Bible, they look at what it says, and they guess <laughs> that what they've been told or what they're thinking is the truth. So the first rule that we need to know about is the rule of definition. What does the word we're looking at mean? I give you definitions all the time. And I give them to you from the 1828 dictionary. There's a reason for that. 
I'm saying world, and I don't tell you what that means to me, then you won't know what that means to me. And you will have your own interpretation. So I have to have the definition in order for us to be thinking on the same page. A friend of ours wrote this devotional. It was all about discipline. It was a great article. I read the whole thing and I thought, what do you think discipline is? <laughs> you see, if your idea of discipline is going to the gym, and my understanding of discipline is somebody getting spanked, we have two different ideas about what discipline is. And we really can't have a meaningful conversation until we both are talking about the same thing. <laughs> the word world is one of those definitions that the King James Version used incorrectly. Yes, <laughs> some things are not translated to our understanding of today. King James is really old, did a great job. <laughs> not bashing the King James. I study from the King James. I use the built-in concordance to help me actually see the original words. So if you read a King James Bible and you look at the word world, it's either one of two words. In the Strong's, the word world is ahion. Properly, it means an age. It doesn't mean cosmos. It makes a big difference. Are we talking about an age of time? That's a period of time, an era of time? Or are we talking about the whole world? The King James threw it all into one <laughs> and called it world. So a better translation would be the word age, not the word world. Interestingly, I like the synonym for the word age because a synonym for that is era. And the word era has everything to do with something coming to an end because something new is coming. That's the right understanding of this particular word for, for world. It's not the word cosmos, which means the physical world. Rule number two, usage. <laughs> it must be remembered that the Old Testament was written originally by, to, and for Jews. So we need to understand the Jewish understanding of words and Jewish idioms. So I, we can look at the, the Hebrew. An idiom is a group of words established by usage as having a meaning not deducible from those individual words. It's raining cats and dogs. Is it? <laughs> Let me go see. Is God throwing cats and dogs out the windows of heaven? <laughs> no, that's an idiom. We know it means it's raining really hard. <laughs> but if you don't know that, if you're from a different country and you've never heard an American say, it's raining cats and dogs, they might be aghast. <laughs> According to the Jewish historian, Josephus Flavius, the Jews had a popular idiom that the average believer would not understand correctly. It's like having a secret language, <laughs> and you need the secret decoder rings. <laughs> One of those idioms is heaven and earth. Now, what would you guess the Jewish people meant by heaven and earth? If you guessed a literal heaven and earth, you would be wrong. The Jewish idiom, heaven and earth, meant the temple. The Holy of Holies was heaven, where God lived. The holy place was earth, where man dwelled. And the outer court, where the brazen labor was, was called the sea. 
if we don't recognize and understand a Jewish idiom when we see one, we will automatically misinterpret the scriptures. Let me give you an example, Matthew 24, 35. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Who was Jesus talking to? Was he talking to America? No, he was talking to his disciples. They were having a private meeting. He didn't even do this openly. He told them, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word won't. So how should we interpret what Jesus is talking about in this scripture? Is Jesus talking literally? Or is he using a well-known Jewish idiom where the people hearing it would know exactly what he was talking about? If we're not sure, we have to look at context. The third rule, context, context, context. You can't understand something apart from its context. The meaning must be gathered from the context. Every word you read must be in the light of the words that came before it and the words that came after it. We can easily see the context in the beginning of this particular chapter, Matthew 24, verses 1 and 2. And Jesus went out. They were all at the temple <laughs> and departed from the temple. And his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. They thought these were awesome buildings, and they were. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. So this long conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples didn't have anything to do with the literal end of the world. But with a Jewish concept of their temple and its eventual fate, which had already been prophesied. And to kind of back up this conclusion that Jesus isn't talking about the end of the world, let's look at Psalm 104, verse 5. The psalmist here is talking about God. And he says, God, who laid the foundations of the earth, that it should not be removed forever. Do you think forever means forever? <laughs> Probably, right? <laughs> okay, we're going to look at the context. We're going to use our rule. I'm going to read it to you in the Passion, beginning with verse 1 of that psalm. Everything I am will praise and bless the Lord. O Lord my God, your greatness takes my breath away, overwhelming me by your majesty, beauty, and splendor. You wrap yourself with a shimmering, glistening light. You wear sunshine like a garment of glory. You stretch out the starry skies like a tapestry. You build your balconies with light beams and ride as king in your chariot which you made from clouds. <laughs> He's very creative. You fly upon the wings of the wind. You make your messengers, talking about angels here, you make your messengers into winds of the spirit and all of your ministers become flames of fire. You, our creator, formed the earth and you hold it all together so it will never fall apart. So God tells us that the world will never be removed or completely fall apart. It might get pretty bruised, but it's not going to be removed. It will be delivered from the power of the curse and be brought back into God's original glorious design, just like our resurrected bodies. Rule four, historical background. <laughs> the interpreter of scripture must have some awareness of the life and society 
of the times in which the scripture was written. I already showed you the example of this with the head coverings. <laughs> but I also want to show you in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 26. This is part of Israel's prophetic history regarding the destruction of a second temple. Beginning in verse 24. The decree has been issued. God's talking to Daniel about the end of the age. <laughs> the decree has been issued. Your people and your holy city have 77s of time to bring rebellion to a close, to put an end to sin, to wipe away guilt, to bring in a righteousness that endures, it's actually everlasting righteousness, to seal up the prophet's vision and to anoint the most sacred place. Some translations say, and to anoint the most holy one. <laughs> I like that one better. Know and understand this, from the proclamation of the word to restore the, and rebuild Jerusalem, to the arrival of the anointed ruler, who would be Jesus, there will be seven weeks of time. For 62 weeks of time, the community will be restored, the city rebuilt with broad streets and deep fences, even through times of trouble. After those 62 weeks of time, the anointed one will be cut down and have nothing. Then the warriors of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and defile the sanctuary. Its end will come swiftly as a flood, and to the end there will be war. The decree has been issued. Desolation. The disciples knew the law and the prophets. They would have known that the second temple that wasn't even done being built, it actually continued to get bigger and bigger and grander and grander until A.D. 66. So Jesus didn't even see it in its fullness. Neither had the disciples at that time. But they knew the second temple was going to be destroyed. It wasn't even done yet. <laughs> All Jesus did regarding that particular prophecy was state the time period in which it would come to pass. Because the prophecy had already been prophesied. And Jesus said, all of these things will happen within 40 years, one generation. In the Old Testament, a generation is always 40 years. But many of the end-time ministers have changed what they know is the standard truth of 40 years being a generation. Now a generation, they say, can be up to 80. Do you remember 1988? 88 reasons why Jesus is coming back to earth, 1988. I read it. <laughs> Late great planet Earth, I read it. <laughs> Everyone was looking for the end of the world. But Jesus never prophesied the end of the world. And God very specifically said, it ain't going nowhere. <laughs> so the disciples wanted to know how they would recognize the time of desolation was upon them. On them. Jesus is telling them, this is what's going to happen. It's all going to happen within 40 years. And they said, how will we recognize it? <laughs> we don't want to be around for this. <laughs> so how do we get out of Dodge? Which is exactly what Jesus told them to do. When you see this, run for the hills. If you're in Judea, get yourself up to the mountains. That was not logical. Because when you have a walled fortress to protect you, why on earth would you leave it? <laughs> exactly. You see, Jesus knew that the walled fortress was going to be laid bare. 
there was not going to be anything left. And if they went to the city to be their protection, they would be destroyed. God says, I am your protection. You get yourself to a mountain. (laughs) So these were all the things that they were going to see. Jesus tells them all the things they were going to experience before the temple fell and was destroyed. I have some of it for you here in Matthew 24, beginning with verse 3. And as he, Jesus, was sitting on the mountain of olives, his disciples came to him alone, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming? Do you see the word second in there anywhere? (laughs) No. Did they know Jesus was going to die and leave? No. Are they asking about the second coming of Christ? No. (laughs) And the completion of the age. This is a faithful version. They got that right. The completion of the age, not the end of the world. Verse 4. Jesus answered and said to them, Be on guard so that no one deceives you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they shall deceive many. Between Jesus' death and resurrection and A.D. 70, when the temple was destroyed, they had the most false prophets and false Christs of all time. They never had a false Christ before that. That's because they knew how many years it would be, 490 years before the anointed ruler shows up. So they kept looking. (laughs) Today, Israel is still looking. They don't even recognize that in their own scripture, both temples are destroyed. And not only are they both destroyed in two different areas of time, but they're destroyed on the exact same day, August 10th. And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you do not let these things disturb you, for it is necessary that all these things take place, but the end is not yet. The end of what? What does our context say? He's talking about the temple. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in different places. Remember all the earthquakes with the disciples, Paul and Silas? Earthquakes everywhere. (laughs) Now, all these things are the beginning of sorrows. He says, this is when the time period starts. Bad stuff is coming. (laughs) Then they shall deliver you up to affliction. No, Jesus, not me. (laughs) And shall kill you. And you shall be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Who is Jesus talking to? Is he talking to us? Nope. He's talking to his disciples. Did that happen? Yes, it did. And it all happened within that time period. And then shall many be led into sin and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall arise and shall deceive many. And because lawlessness shall be multiplied, the love of many shall grow cold. Who is he talking about? Christians? No. He's talking about disciples. He's talking about the Jews at that time. That the more they hear the truth of who Jesus is, the less they want anything to do with him. Verse 13. But the one who endures to the end, that one shall be saved. Saved from what? (laughs) People all over the world misinterpret this particular scripture like, oh no, what if I don't make it to the end? What if I'm not faithful, completely faithful, then I won't be saved anymore. He's not talking about salvation. He's talking about being able to stay alive. (laughs) Don't go back to Jerusalem. They're going to be wiped out. This scripture has nothing to do with the so-called perseverance of the saints. Nothing. 
<laughs> Instead, it has everything to do with listening to what Jesus said. Jesus told them to run to the mountains when they saw the abomination of desolation, which Luke defines as Gentile armies surrounding Jerusalem. We see this in Luke 21, verses 20 through 22. And when ye see Jerusalem compassed around with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. And let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains. He's not talking to us. We don't need to find mountains. And let them that are in the midst of it depart out. And let not them that are in the countries enter here into. In other words, if you're in the field, go to a mountain. Don't go home. For these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. What are the days of vengeance? The time period between Jesus' resurrection and the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Those are the days. Because the disciples understood what Jesus was saying, they understood him exactly. They didn't ask him a whole bunch of you know, goofy questions. <laughs> and remembered to tell all those who believed in Jesus. The believers did exactly what Jesus told them to do. And history records that when Jerusalem was completely destroyed, not one Christian died in the siege. Not one. Because they understood the Jewish code word. <laughs> they understand the temple is coming down. It's not the end of the world. It's the end of the Jewish world. The destruction of Jerusalem and the temple was truly the worst possible tribulation the nation of Israel has ever endured. It was even worse than the Holocaust. They lost everything. It was truly the great tribulation that had been prophesied. But it was their great tribulation, not ours. Over 1.1 million Jews lost their lives. And when they were finally overtaken by the enemy, there was only 90,000 Jews left. The scripture says that if the days had not been shortened, not one of the Jews would have survived. The scripture calls them the elect. It was the Jews they were talking about. That's why he said, if God hadn't intervened and stopped Rome, all of them would have been destroyed. God had mercy even on the time of judgment. The last rule of hermeneutics I have for you is the rule of logic. Love this rule. <laughs> Interpretation is merely logical reasoning. When interpreting scripture, the use of reason is everywhere to be assumed. So when we begin to draw conclusions regarding the scriptures, they must be logical. <laughs> is our end time scenarios logical? Logic says that we should interpret Literal, ordinary language, literally. Run to the mountains. He wasn't talking metaphorically. Run to the mountains. <laughs> and it is logical that we should interpret symbolic language symbolically. Heaven and earth. Not the heaven and earth physical realm, but the temple. It is not logical to interpret symbolic language literally. You know why we have all these crazy in time you know, the, the machines are going to rise up and take over and artificial intelligence is going to rule the world and be afraid, be afraid, be very afraid because they've taken logic out of the scripture, their interpretation. You have to interpret symbolic language symbolically. Matthew 24, verse 29 says this. 
Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. This is the same kind of language used in the Old Testament. You could go find it (laughs) to describe the defeat and judgment of Israel's enemies. It's symbolic language. The literal sun, moon, stars have always stayed exactly where they belonged. (laughs) They never came down in the Old Testament, even though this is the exact same thing that God told Israel was going to happen to their enemies. Israel was taking over that government. When one government overtakes another one, you get this kind of language. The sun, the moon, and the stars are involved. Remember Joseph? He had a dream. Sun, moon, and stars. Did he interpret the family, interpret that literally, that he was talking about (laughs) sun, moon, and stars? No, they understood exactly what he was talking about. His dad was ticked off. Who do you think you are? Thinking I'm going to be bowing down to you. Symbolic language has to be interpreted in this symbolic understanding. I believe the sun, moon, and the stars are going to continue as long as we are alive. And how long are we going to be alive? Forever. God's not removing the earth. His scripture says so. I believe the great tribulation that everybody's so afraid of happened in AD 70 to Israel. And I believe that the last days were the days between the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the annihilation of Jerusalem. The complete destruction of Jerusalem was the end of the world for the Jews who continued to reject their Messiah. But in Christ, there is no end of the world. Ephesians 3.21 says this, Unto him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ throughout all ages, world without end. Do you think the Apostle Paul knew what he was talking about? I do. This point of view that I'm sharing with you is called preterism. And I would be considered a partial preterist. (laughs) Preterism simply means in the past. I don't believe that everything is past, at least not at this point in my life. (laughs) I believe that most of the book of Revelation has already happened. It's in our past. It's not in our future. And at this point in my healing journey, I still believe in the literal return of Jesus Christ in the future. I just don't happen to believe that it's an escape hatch from the Great Tribulation. I teased you a little bit at the beginning of my message about what Andrew Womack had said about the rapture. He said he no longer believes that the rapture is what he was originally taught it was, which is it was taught as an escape hatch. He didn't elaborate any further because this kind of stuff is very controversial. (laughs) Maybe he didn't want to be going record. He just said, I don't see it the way I used to. But he said, after much study, I came to this conclusion that the rapture isn't what I was taught it was. So what is it exactly? It's a celebration to honor our returning king. We will meet him in the air and then probably turn around, come right back to earth with him and his saints because that was the Jewish understanding of what happened when the heroes and the victors came home. Everybody left the city and ran out to greet them. And then they all came back in together. That's the picture of the rapture. It's not an escape hatch 
We don't need an escape hatch. We have Jesus. I hope this message has encouraged you to be willing to hold your in-time beliefs loosely while you either study much or listen to teachers who do. Years ago, when I started my search to find the answers to my end-of-the-world questions, I found it difficult and almost impossible to find the understanding I have today. But the times have changed. If you have a computer, you can go on YouTube and type in preterist or partial preterist, and you will find a plethora of teachers. Some that I can recommend are John Noe, R.C. Sproul, a website called Exposition 44. These are some of the ones that I've actually watched. Paul White has a 41-episode video blog with gigantic amounts of information. <laughs> I've only got to 32. I, I haven't watched them all. <laughs> the books I can recommend are Unraveling the End by John Noe and AD 70 and the End of the World by Paul Ellis. If nothing else, I hope I've encouraged you to get out your Strong's Concordance so that you can do a little digging into the Word of God for yourself. Because it's one thing to sit and let people tell you their opinion. It's entirely different when you go to the Word with your study materials and the Holy Spirit shows you what's actually true. Amen? Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that your word is true, even when we don't understand it. <laughs> I thank you, Father God, that they haven't rewritten the Bible to make it say what they want it to say. Father God, I ask that you continue to open our eyes to how best to understand the scriptures. We thank you, Father God, for amazing grace, for amazing grace. The last time I ministered, I talked to you about reconciliation. Reconciliation says Jesus has paid for the sins of every man, woman, and child. Doesn't mean they're saved. Just means they can now come. If God reconciled the world, made the world his friend, why would he turn around and beat the living daylights out of them? That wouldn't be a very good friend. God is not looking to pour out judgment on our world. That's not his heart. He poured out judgment on the temple and the system that brought wrath. The law brought wrath, not Jesus Christ. We can have peace <laughs> that our Father is not going to judge the world for the sins that they've already been judged in Christ. Yes, every person has to receive Jesus. He is the salvation. But God's not mad. God's crazy about you. Amen. Amen.